Dear wonderful people of the internet, welcome back to the future of here at Nordic Fintech Magazine. Today we have a real treat for you. We had the opportunity to sit down with Runemai, CEO and co-founder of Aya. Aya is an open banking company based here in Denmark and they've recently been acquired by Mastercard, which means that they're in a growth path to transform banking forever. In this conversation, we talked about the future of open banking, the future of financial services, and what you can expect from your bank in the future. So you really don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We want, I want to start the conversation by talking a little bit about open banking in general, because we hear a lot about open banking and it, there's a lot of buzz around it, uh, especially on the back of PSD2. Um, but I would love to hear from, on your own words, what is open banking for you? Yeah, it's, it's a broad kind of term, in, in my opinion. So it's, it's kind of an umbrella term for everything related to the ability to access account information or to do payments directly from mm -hmm. bank accounts mm -hmm. in other environments than necessarily the bank's own environments. Okay. Uh, it's, um, so like Open Banking UK, PSD2 here in Europe, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's a term for um banking in, in, in the US, but uh, what we have there as well uh, are examples of, uh, of, of, of this development. And typically what you see is that it becomes technology-based payments, technology-based data retrievals, uh, very corresponding to what we've seen with the social media platforms and such that kind of spread their ecosystems, right? Here the, the account is spreading itself to, to other ecosystems. Right. And so if, if I'm a customer, let's, let's assume that I'm someone who doesn't work in banking, uh, I have a bank account, maybe a savings account, how is open banking going to impact what I'm able to do? So if you look at it historically, uh, if you had to do anything related to banking, mm -hmm. you would go to your bank. Right? Yeah. Even if you move all the way back to the time where we actually only had cash in society, you would go to the shop or the store to buy groceries and realize that you didn't have enough cash, then you would have to go to the bank. Mm -hmm. go to the teller and then, then ask the nice lady there to withdraw like 100 uh, euros or whatever the, the currency was at that time from your account and then you can go buy groceries. Mm -hmm. Being able to allow your banking services, even your accounts or the ability to do certain payments directly from the apps that we're using today mm -hmm. is the biggest benefit as I see it for, for consumers and, uh, and also for business owners that the shift from physical mm -hmm. and being able to go to a store and today you go to an app to mm -hmm. do the same things but your bank doesn't go along with you yeah that has changed now the bank is available anywhere where there's own banking right okay so i, I think uh, a lot of us for for quite some time we've, we've been used to online purchasing so before you would have a checkout process where you could enter your credit card details and then the transactions completed What's, is that open banking? Open banking is typically related to direct access to accounts. Mm -hmm. So you could say a credit card is an overlay on top of that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a different set of rails that in the end still accesses your account okay. data and also do the payment from your account, right? But through this uh, extensive network of uh, issuers and acquirers and so forth, where Open banking is more the ability to directly access the account and directly do payments from the account without mm -hmm. having to go through 
issuers or acquirers and so forth. So it's actually you as an end consumer that just access your bank account from the environment where you need to perform the payment. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, then we could say that customers are going to have a more seamless uh, purchasing experience directly when they deal with merchants without really having to invoke their bank as a third party whenever they, they want to make a payment. And there's, of course, a data component as well. How do you envisage data moving across accounts and merchants uh, to enable a more seamless experience for customers? So first of all, I think that because we change the way we act in the physical world, mm -hmm. we kind of tend to carry a device that also brings the virtual world mm -hmm. along with it. So when we sit here, for instance, it might be that you're checking LinkedIn or something else, right? Um, and that's where you bring your accounts also. And if, if those services should be kind of able to detect who you are and then massage all the information into a meaningful, uh, decisive unit for you mm -hmm. to choose either yes or no for, you need the data into play as well. Mm -hmm. And it, the, the data from your account is a documentary of your life, so to speak. It kind of like leads a trail or shows a trail of where, where you spent your money so far. That can be used to generate a profile of you mm -hmm. to your own benefit that allows you to have services that then act on your behalf instead of just like mellow services where you don't see any kind of personalization in, in the apps and so forth. So I think in the future we'll probably see open banking and account data sharing as something that will lead to better personalization to your benefit, mm -hmm. because I think that's where GDPR and all the other things are playing into uh, to the whole setup, right? Yeah. That if, if you have protective grounds for you to share data, then it becomes a benefit of you. Of course. Okay, and so uh, what I we, we know that PSD2 started as a, as a regulatory initiative from the European Central Bank. Mm -hmm. Um, have you noticed there, uh, there a challenge for adoption of, of, of open banking or PSD2 related uh, initiatives from the bank's perspective? I would say what we've seen so far, if you kind of could talk about waves of open banking, I think the first wave has actually been initiated and, uh, and, 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 and rolled through by banks. Mm -hmm. So if you look at almost any market, the most active TPPs we have are the banks themselves. Mm -hmm. So they have actually been driving the agenda along with also being the providers of open banking, right? They provide the interfaces, mm -hmm. but also consume them to a large degree, uh, building uh, account aggregation services in, in the mobile banking experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And what do they gain from that, you could ask? Mm -hmm. If you, as a consumer, has... Uh, have uh, two or three banks, for instance, in, into play. Um, banks could offer you to aggregate everything into their mobile experience mm -hmm. or their web experience for you to then only perform banking through their app, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of a, a battle of interface, like who owns the customer relationship, not only to customers they have, but also to other banks' customers. Okay, so, so it's in the bank's best interest to be able to offer open banking solutions just because otherwise customers would go for other banks that allow them to see all their other accounts in one single place. Yeah, basically. sure, sure. Um, I, I would say banks, the, we have, in my company, we have like 43 banks as customers and they have been the most vocal of all our customers in terms of like 
how to set this regime straight in terms of quality. Mm -hmm. So we work closely with these banks in order to provide the quality of home banking they need for their own services. Mm -hmm. And some of the things they need actually is in relation to the teams they have themselves that are delivering it on the other mm -hmm. side because they are the right. providers, right? Uh -huh. so, so I would say um, banks have been driving this agenda for a long time. Um, I know there's been a lot of talks about banks being reluctant to share data and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, yes, it, it, it makes sense that banks also want to make money of technologies they have to provide right mm -hmm. now for free. Uh, so if you look at the PSD2 scope in, in the whole open banking space, that's very much related to only uh, payment accounts. Mm -hmm. So if you want to aggregate accounts from uh, savings or from um, mortgages or from loans, typically you can't do it through PSD2. And this is an opportunity for banks to then provide these kind of accesses uh, on a commercial ground. Right? And would you say that there is any risk for banks to lose the customer interface by embedding it at um, open banking solutions in their ecosystem? I would say on the contrary. Okay. I, I know that it, it has been the talk of the day and the topic of the century probably when, when we started talking PSD2 that now banks will become commodity, right? Right. But what happened is that us consumers, we moved everything into the digital space. We connect digitally, we decide digitally, mm -hmm. we buy digitally. Mm -hmm. And the banks have not been able to be along on that journey, right? So there's been a greater and greater gap between consumers and the banks. And now with open banking, you kind of have your bank back into your own pocket again. Right. right? Okay. And, and, and then if, if we look at it from a customer perspective, are there any particular challenges for customers embracing open banking solutions? If you look at it from adoption curves, right, the, the first adoption curve that we had to, uh, to, to work with was the maturity of PC2 APIs in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when they launched the APIs back in 2018 and, or 19. Um, the maturity wasn't that high. So everyone has been working, the banks have been working, the TPPs has been working, and, and, and all the aggregators have been working with banks mm -hmm. on kind of raising the level of quality in, in the PSD2 APIs. Um, I would say today we're pretty far off that kind of uh, adoption curve. And then the other part has been the business mm -hmm. adoption curves, uh, where like getting businesses to build a solution that actually benefits someone has been... An, educational um, thing for many companies uh, to, to be providing like like ours right we talk to many of our business about like how they can build the right use cases and so forth and I think what we are facing now is that the maturity is there the businesses are ripe to build services so now we need to kind of also educate consumers on the benefits of doing open banking mm -hmm. and if you say this happens in an environment where you also see a lot of abuse of data where people are constantly being like uh, used for uh, banner retargeting, uh, cookies are being sold behind your back, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook is selling your data. We hear, we hear all these stories all the time. Yeah, and that's again where I say like GDPR is probably the best thing that happened here in European soil uh -huh. in terms of being able to share your data where you can expect it to be something for your purpose and your benefit, right? Because you have to give consent for the data and how it's processed right. um, and like being able to give a clear consent and allow someone to process your data for this purpose not for this purpose is probably what's going to drive that adoption along with communication so I, I expect to see a lot of open banking communication change from being 
labeled open banking mm -hmm. to instead being about how you can benefit from doing X, Y, and C with your account. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so moving it more from within the bank to actually what for, to the customer. As a, exactly. Right. That's, okay. So uh, we've we've heard we've heard already. Uh, Perhaps I wouldn't say rumors, but there's there's already this line of thinking to say to say well, the rest of industries are going to have to follow suit with what banking is doing with regards to open banking and opening up. Um, is there anything that you think other industries can learn from what's been happening in financial services in terms of making uh, open banking a reality? Yeah, I think the whole open finance label that we use these days mm -hmm. is about this next wave, right? Like that everything will be opened up, like even utility data will be opened up for us to consume together with other financial data parts mm -hmm. to provide a better overview of your life and the way you spend money even on gas or on um, electricity, on water and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Probably generate a picture of the house you can actually live in if you lived a certain way. If yeah. you remember to close your doors, or if you remember to close your windows, right? Uh -huh. You could afford a bigger house. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, in terms of learning, uh, there's a huge difference between what we saw and see in the UK mm -hmm. versus what we see in the European yeah. state. So the European legislation was kind of a top-down procedure, right? So it's a EU policy that was then enforced on each of the EU member mm -hmm. countries that had to implement it in their own laws, and then have their FSAs kind of comply to that. Yep. Right? So it's a compliance regime, mm. where if you look at the Open Banking UK, it's led by the competitive authorities, CMA, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's much more a direct enforceable regime, where if the CMA sees something that is kind of like leading to less competition in, mm -hmm. in the financial space, they can change that and force banks to do a new API. We've seen it recently with the variable recurring um, payment APIs that uh, they're now kind of like proposing banks to to be building, right? Yeah. That, that would be a direct debit killer. Like right. One API directly from your account with any amount that can be deducted at any time mm -hmm. with your mandate is exactly what direct debit is all about. Right? Yeah. Now you can do it directly from your account in the UK. So I think the learnings is probably that in other industries you should work a lot on whether it should be market-driven first, mm -hmm. and typically policies, they should, bear, should be in place to support markets yeah. right, and market initiative. Um, so I think what we probably should bring into insurance or into the savings space or even totally other new spaces that, that we want to kind of facilitate data sharing from is that if you want to survive in the future and if the hypothesis that the UNIs out there, all the consumers, have actually moved into a digital space, mm -hmm. are using ecosystems like your iPhone with the apps that you want and I have the apps that I want. Um, if you can't be present there, if you can't allow me as a customer of your product to share data from my own kind of environment in your product, you probably will lose relevance over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's back to the bank part also that banks they have been thinking that they're losing relevance because of home banking mm -hmm. and I would say they are gaining relevance because of home banking so the same probably will happen within um, all other spaces that if you don't share data if you don't give access to data you will lose relevance to the ones that are because giving you the possibility of accessing your data in 
environments where you want to use them is probably not only a benefit, it's also a requirement moving into yeah. the future. So, so if I hear you correctly, it, it seems that uh, at, at the moment, or perhaps in the past years, open, um, the embracing of open banking has been a competitive differentiator, and we're moving into a scenario where it will be basically a, a, a ticket to the dance, that if you don't do this, you're yeah. out of business. Yeah. Well, that's a significant change in, in market dynamics. Yeah, but, but also, like, open banking as a term is also about products. Yeah. Banks being able to produce APIs on top of their products that they sell, right? So if you have a credit line, mm -hmm. why is it that you have to call the bank mm -hmm. to add that credit line to your account? Yeah. If they have all the data, right? You, you already aggregated all your accounts, so they have a pretty good picture of your capabilities mm -hmm. and whether you're able to pay down uh, any credit. Yeah. Um, they could offer you that credit directly in their own app, but they could also offer it in the buying context where you actually needed more money. Yeah. Today we all talk about BNPL, right? Yeah, yeah. But why not just like the bank could just stretch their credit to any app, right? So if I already logged in my bank to uh, I don't know Netflix, mm -hmm. and I wanted to buy this new movie concept that they they launched, and it was like a thousand euros or something, and only had like a hundred euros on my account, they uh -huh. could just stretch my capabilities immediately there as an API. Wow. I think that's where we're moving, and the ones that don't do that, they lose that opportunity, right? To, to the ones that are doing this. Uh, that's one thing. The other part is uh, the whole overlay that we see a lot. So we see a lot of banks that are starting to experiment with building services that are used by any banking customer. Mm -hmm. And once you have that up and running, that could be a cash flow analytics tool for SMEs. So people, they use that in order to stay on top of their cash so they know they can pay their next round of that and mm -hmm. that they're getting the money in from the invoices they send out and so forth. Let's say they can buy, buy their, uh, pay their next round of yeah. that. Uh, and the uh, application already knew because it was doing like cash flow predictions. Mm -hmm. Then the bank that issued this app to you, even though you're not customer with that bank, they could be giving you a loan directly through that app. And all of a sudden, a bank that doesn't have your customer can sell their products to you. So I think that's where we're moving in the future. And if, if you become irrelevant in mm -hmm. that digital space, um, you will lose to the ones that actually take advantage of you, right? Um, so I, I picked up uh, a couple of, uh, of, of times in our, in our conversation that, that, you, that you make an emphasis on quality. So do, do you think that perhaps the the, the slow uptake at the very beginning on this first wave of open banking uh, and perhaps a hesitance to adopt it was, was, was related to the lack of quality in the APIs and the interfaces? Yes, yes. most surely. Uh, when, when, when these APIs were launched in uh, September 19, mm -hmm. most of them actually didn't work yeah. as products. Right? They, they, you might be able to log in, you might be able to see some data, mm. but then at scale it didn't work. Or, even the data that was provided wasn't the right data and so forth. So a lot has been fixed over mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Um, but on top of that, I would also say that the way companies service companies that want to take advantage of open banking mm -hmm. has also still a lot to do. Yeah. And I think when I talk quality, I actually talk quality in terms of quality of service mm -hmm. and quality of technology. Yeah. Um, and both has to be in place because it's still a fairly new field. Mm -hmm. and you have to ensure that the ones that are consuming your services actually 
build something that goes live. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you don't have volume enough to help the APIs become the quality you want. Mm -hmm. So you're, on one side, you need to bring customers to life while you have APIs that constantly have to be raised in terms of quality maturity. Mm -hmm. And you can only do that by delivering great service on both hands, right? Yeah. I think that's that's probably what we have been trying to build here uh, in the Nordics and that we are exporting to the rest of Europe right now mm -hmm. is, is, is that model where quality of service goes hand in hand with quality of technology. And, and that's precisely where I wanted to take my next question. Tell us a little bit more about AYA and what's, what makes you different uh, than other companies that perhaps are providing API services. We have, since we launched the company back in 2010 mm -hmm. and, and created one of the first aggregators here in, in Europe and, and, and the first to appear in the Nordics, mm -hmm. um, we set out to build something that was based on privacy-first mm -hmm. principles. Way before GDPR, Mm -hmm. where people, they had to give us consent for us to process the data. Yeah. So even our PFM map, we never shared data behind the back in mm -hmm. any case. Mm -hmm. right? Everything we did was transparent. Everything was based on that you own the data, and, but, but you, you want to share it to, mm -hmm. to other parties to gain advantage of that. Um, so that transparency, we took that into um, to the setup of AYA as well, mm -hmm. and then providing that for businesses that are customers with us, right? So they can trust that we not only store data, but also act on top of GDPR. Uh, and even further than that, uh, make sure that we don't kind of bring the ones that own the, the account and that in the end is sharing the data, which is the end users. Mm -hmm. They should always be in control of this. Um, so, so that principle has led to a lot of different technologies. So we for enterprise customers, for instance, we can work as a pure data processor mm -hmm. where we don't store any any data at all. We just act as, uh, you could say, dumb pipes uh, that uh, mm -hmm. acts upon instruction. And once that instruction has been completed, there's no trace of anything happened in, mm -hmm. in our nets. Banks, they really like that part. And for SMEs, we have a different product where we have something called IHOP, where, mm -hmm. where, where you can share as an end user. You can set up your sharing in there. So you get an overview of which accounts did you set up for sharing, with which services are you sharing them, for what purposes. Mm -hmm. You can revoke that access directly from, from, from this tool, but you can also get like a centralized view on, okay, when did service what retrieve, what kind of information from you, which service did perform a payment and so forth. So you can be totally in control, right? You get all the levers of control directly in, in, in your own hands, something that goes way beyond the PSD2. Mm -hmm. On the other part, it's like security and compliance being very focused on from day one to understand that Europe is not Europe. Europe is still 27 slash 28 different countries with their own legislations, their own lawmakers, their own um, NCAs and so forth. Um, okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about the future of AYA. Uh, of course, we're all aware of uh, the recent news. Um, about the uh, acquisition of MasterCard, uh, so uh, MasterCard's acquisition of AYA. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what led to that acquisition taking place? Yeah, so um, when, when we looked at the model we built for banking, we started out building in the Nordics together with Nordic banks to make sure that we kind of controlled all the elements that were out of control in the beginning. And once we got that model in place, we started looking to the European 
scope mm-hmm. saying like how can we roll out fast to to the rest of Europe and we did a lot on our own so we connect to 2900 banks now we are available in 18 markets in Europe mm-hmm. already um, but in order to grow even faster we started looking for a third investor yeah we had like Danske Bank and DNB as investors at that time um, a third investor to bring us faster to the to the rest of the European um, markets uh, so it was kind of like a search for a distribution partner mm-hmm. and perhaps even a technology partner at the same time and then we stressed that it wouldn't kind of hurt us if it was a payment mm-hmm. company either and then a year ago or so uh, I started talking to uh, two guys from Mastercard and at that time I realized that they were actually executing fairly fast on a strategy they called multi-rail uh-huh. Uh, Mastercard, they want to be part of any payment that happens, yep. not only card payments, but also direct debits that happens on like um, proprietary direct debit platforms, mm-hmm. uh, open banking payments, and also the data part, and being able to use data to even further um, secure the, the payment itself, but also to give leverage for lending situations and so forth, uh, was on top of the agenda. Mm-hmm. And they had been searching for a partner that to compliance and security and quality um, uh, as, as, as their primary concerns, right? Mm-hmm. And when we started talking and we started like talking about IHOP and, and these things, these things, they just resonated with, with, with MasterCard. And, and, and on the other hand, when they started talking about what they had been doing in the US, buying Finicity over there mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how they were looking at the whole space of payments, not on banking necessarily, but space of payments moving more and more into the digital realm itself, um, we started seeing a lot of synergies. Um, mm-hmm. And even though Mastercard is a huge company and, and we're still a fairly small company, right? Getting to the 100-man team, um, what we could see is the way they developed technologies, the way they constructed their organization in terms of developing technologies was something that matched with, with, with our capabilities. Mm-hmm. So I think at some point during that dialogue, it, it changed from being about an investment into what would happen if we kind of like just put the, the foot on the speeder and just pull full throttle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where the kind of talk about uh, merchant or even like having MasterCard acquiring us uh, came came up. So it seems that this was not just a matter of uh, gaining new capabilities, but the way you describe it, there's a, there was a meeting of the minds or a meeting of the of the mindset of both organizations that was yeah. very compatible. I personally really, really uh, get inspired by it is that uh, from ground to top at MasterCard, they share the same vision. I had dialogues with Michael Niebeck that was about like data privacy, mm-hmm. about the ability to benefit consumers of the future with data, with payments and so forth, and had the same kind of talks with tech people from MasterCard, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's very corresponding to how we run this company. Right. Uh, there's no difference, like, as, as me as a CEO and, and a developer, it's the same thing we want, right? Mm-hmm. We want the quality, we want the compliance, and we want this rolled out fast because we believe that it's, uh, it's the future of uh, financial services. Okay, and so in your view, how will the end consumer, the, 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 the person on the street with a bank account and a, and a card for payments or a mobile uh, account, how will they be able to benefit from this acquisition uh, with MasterCard? Fast rollout. Mm-hmm. Being able to do this within the year or the next year, like okay. to have oh, this rolled yeah. fully out, right? 
being able to sell in all markets, Mastercard, they have ground teams everywhere, right? Mm. So we can tap into that kind of distribution, uh, which uh, again allows this to come at consumers' hands much mm -hmm. faster. Because I think that's the biggest issue of home banking right now, that we need to push like the speed of delivery to a completely new level as mm -hmm. we've seen so far, because consumers are actually longing for these things, right? They, they want simpler ways of being able to pay more integrated ways where you can do different payment options depending on, on where you're at. Sometimes you might actually want to use your MasterCard if you're buying travel stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Other times when you're topping up your saving accounts, you might want to use open banking. Like being able to do all these things when you need them mm -hmm. now instead of in 10 years. Yeah. I think that's the major benefit of, uh, of us joining forces here. Um, and the other part is probably like being supported by the MasterCard brand doesn't hurt in terms of consumer adoption either. Yeah. Like being able to push our own brand out there is much harder than being able to push it through MasterCard channels. Of course. And earlier you mentioned that GDPR was almost like a like a like a fast track avenue for the expansion of open banking within Europe, of course. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you're present in 18 markets within the European Union. Is is the acquisition of MasterCard going to uh, propel IS services globally and if so what vehicles similar to GDPR exist in other areas that could help smooth yeah. that transition? So they already have a net in mm -hmm. the in the US mm -hmm. so I think we would probably see like post acquisition that we will start to kind of build an integration between those two nets like making MasterCard one of the first companies to go truly global with open banking. Yeah. Um, allowing US companies to really fast also onboard the European market and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in itself is, is really exciting. Absolutely. And what Finicity built before MasterCard kind of acquired them was something similar as we built before GDPR uh -huh. was in place in right. Europe. Right? So they always took the stance that you need to be in control of your own sharing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it won't work that we build a system on top of your bank account. Yeah. Um, so they have the same kind of data privacy rules set up for themselves and kind of now inherit GDPR. Mm -hmm. So I think like pushing a seamless experience of open banking with the same security standards, with the same data sharing protectionism uh, in order to have consumers actually adopt this, I think MasterCard will be the first to, to, to drive this to, to the global space. Um, I think we will concentrate very much on European space. Mm -hmm. It's difficult enough to get the quality there in uh, the next coming years, right? And then and, and Finicity in, in the US, and then we probably will start looking at some of the newer, more um, uh, the next level markets that will, will be like South America or Asia and, and stuff like that. Okay. South Africa is also booming. Absolutely. So, so all of a sudden now, you, yeah, AI has a, basically the doors open to bring services to the entire, glo to, to the entire globe. Yeah, and vice versa. Uh, yeah. There might be services that already is developed at, uh, at the US soil, yeah. uh, but as value adds, that, that would work perfectly well on top of our rails as well. Mm -hmm. So you can start like exchanging technologies. Right? Well, I, th I think that's fascinating and uh, we're definitely excited to hear where AYA goes next. Uh, we're very excited about the news and uh, we'll be rooting for you all the way here from Nordic Fintech Magazine. Yeah. So Rune, thank you so much for your time.